Please listen carefully. Hi, to all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. We're just over six months into this very first season of Radio Film School. Every week since September 1st, I've come to you with at least one, sometimes two, new episodes chock full of pop culture film and TV references, amusing anecdotes, and engaging conversations with filmmakers and other artists who have profound and poignant comments about what it means to be a filmmaker, and really, to be any kind of an artist. There are nearly three dozen episodes to inspire, encourage, and educate. So, I thought this would be a good point in the season to have the requisite flashback show. You're all familiar with those, aren't you? It's like those episodes on a sitcom when the writers can't think of anything new, so they make up an excuse for the characters to talk about scenes that happened in earlier seasons of the show. Well, that's what this episode is. Except, there's actually a legit reason I'm posting this Best Of special. And it's related to a big announcement. I'm happy to announce that Radio Film School is part of the Podcastica Network. Podcastica is a network of eight great podcasts, most of which are devoted to pop culture, film, and TV shows. They have podcasts like Game of Microphones or the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast, Under the Comic Covers, and The Walking Dead Cast, which is the number one podcast about AMC's hit show, The Walking Dead. Ironically enough, though, it was the host of one of their non-TV-related shows that hooked me up with Podcastica. I was a guest on Podcast Junkies, a, a podcast about podcasting. And the host of that show, Harry Duran, and I really hit it off. Harry is one of the co-owners of Podcastica, and he loved what we are doing here in Radio Film School. And as he put it, as soon as he heard our show, he knew he wanted to invite us to join Podcastica. So he invited, and I joined. This is very cool news, as we'll be introduced to a new family of listeners. And that is the purpose of this episode, to welcome our new Podcastica listeners with clips and flashbacks to some of our favorite episodes. Think of this as a sort of primer on Radio Film School. But even if you've been listening for a while, I think you'll dig this episode. We have a selection of some of my favorite opening anecdotes and guest stories. And as usual, I'll have a post-credits bonus where I, for the first time ever, give the definition of the term short ends and the purpose of the short ends episodes on the show. One more thing before we get started. I have to give thanks and props to our sponsors who help keep the show going strong. First, their song Freedom, who's been with us since episode three. They are the premier song licensing site where you can find songs to legally license for your video productions. Everything from alt-rock to hip-hop, from indie bands, even top 40 pop hits and oldies but goodies. Go to songfreedom.com radio and you'll unlock a standard gold level license worth $30. And since first and foremost, Radio Film School is a show about stories and storytelling, it only makes sense that our latest sponsor is Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. This is the storytelling process that helped them go from shooting weddings to shooting the Super Bowl. It's a process that impressed Apple Computer, got Still Motion co-founder Patrick Moreau in front of the United Nations and a TEDx stage, and a process that helped them win five Emmys. When you go to learnstory.org and use the offer code RADIO, you'll get $47 off lifetime access. We thank Song Freedom and Muse Storytelling for their support. Now, on with the show. Oh, wait, sorry, my bad. I have one more, one more thing. My Quentin Tarantino episode is still in the works. As one might expect, filmmakers have a lot to say about Tarantino, so it's been a more time-intensive editing process, whittling all of those interview clips down to the very best. But don't worry, as usual, I'll have some kind of bonus episodes where you can hear the full, uncut interviews about Tarantino. Anyhow, I hope to have the show ready by next week or the week after at the latest. It's going to be a doozy. 
Okay, now on with the show. I'm Ron Dawson, and welcome to Radio Film School, a best of episode. Take one, take ten, Marker. Action. Hmm? Ah! Oh. I started this podcast because I wanted to offer something different. As I mentioned in the season one preview, in a sea of podcasts about filmmaking and video production, did we really need another one? The answer was yes. I felt like something was missing. A show that was informative and educational, but also inspirational. One that got to the heart of what it means to be a filmmaker. And as any self-respecting filmmaker will tell you, it's all about the story. At our core, Radio Film School is about storytelling. Guests tell stories about the making of their films or important lessons that they've learned. I usually open each episode with a story. At first, the story may not seem to have any rhyme or reason as to why I'm telling it. What in the world does breakdancing or swing dancing have anything to do with being a filmmaker, you may ask? But pay attention, because although I may be going in a circular motion, there will be a point. And one of the first stories I told on the show was from episode two. It's a perfect place to start. Sometimes origin stories start in places you'd least expect. On one of my yearly visits to my dad's house, uh, he gave me a super 8mm film camera. He was, and to this day, is an avid photography hobbyist. And so he gave me this little motion picture movie camera. And when someone that important to you gives you something like that, it makes a mark on you. You don't necessarily know it at the time, but I think it makes a mark nonetheless. I can't help but think about the wonderful movie that came out this year, my favorite so far, uh, Inside Out by Pixar. I'm pretty sure that this would qualify as one of those core memories. I don't want to get too technical, but these are called core memories. Each one came from a super important time in Riley's life. To be honest, I don't actually remember how often I used the camera, but what I do remember was using it to make my very first movie a sci-fi crime caper about a time-traveling thief who used a magic clock to jump to different periods of time and steal valuable artifacts from history. The film was shot entirely on location at Disneyland. To those who just joined us, welcome aboard the Disneyland Railroad. Where I used the different lands as, as the different time periods, you know, Frontierland and Fantasyland for the past, uh, Tomorrowland for the future, etc. We even did some pickup shots at Universal Studios. This was back when there was only one Universal Studios and it was located in Southern California. My little brother was quote-unquote drafted as a star. Uh, he really didn't have a choice or I would beat him up. That's one of the benefits of being a bigger brother. So I'll never forget the scene where the thief is going to disappear from a train, take a trip to the future. So there we are, and we're sitting on the locomotive at uh, Main Street Station. 
And my scene is not really, it's not really coalescing the way I envisioned it as a seven-year-old director. You see, even as a kid, I realized that if I wanted to create the effect of him disappearing, I would have to shoot him in a space, then have him move out of the space, then shoot the space again, then have him come back into the space. And I was trying to do this scene where he disappears and then I think reappears. I don't know. Anyway, it wasn't working out the way I expected it or the way I was planning it. And so um, I kept having him do it over and over and the train started moving. If you'll be leaving us here, please wait until the train comes to a full stop. My mom is freaking out because her two little boys are on the train and she's saying, Ronnie, Ronnie, get over here. We don't have time for this. I'm sure it was just early stages of me pushing the boundaries as a director. Now, let me answer the question that I'm sure many of you are probably thinking right about now. Well, you know, I had the audio recording from my mom to my dad. Surely he must have that first film that he created. Unfortunately, I don't. But man, I'd, I'd give anything to be able to see that. Kids today just don't know how awesome they have it being able to record everything that they have and have it be so easily accessible. Anyway, that's the story of the very first movie I ever made. And I tell you that story because I want you to consider the possibility that your journey as a filmmaker probably started a lot sooner than you think. Even though I've known about that camera story for years, it's only been recently that I've embraced and considered it as a possible origin for my own journey as a filmmaker. I see it now as a seed for what eventually bloomed into a young boy and later on a young man longing to tell stories with the moving image like I did so long ago. On our next installment of the show, I'm going to recount to you the specific turn of events that directly ignited my film career. A story that involves four unlikely business partners, three hip-hop artists, two epic failures, and one ulcer. It's a story that's so funny it would make a hilarious movie, which is what I wanted to do when I told my friend about the story, which made me want to go to film school to tell the story, and that made me become a filmmaker specifically. That's next time on the show. Who needs love? It's too much trouble There are a few aspects of that story that I think are hallmarks of the quintessential Radio Film School episode. First, the music. That song used was Man with a Golden Soul by Kula, curated from freemusicarchive.org. Lots of our music comes from there because it's creative commons. And Kula is one of my favorite artists. You're going to hear a lot of songs of his on the Tarantino episode. The other aspect of that story was the sound design. It's actually something I haven't done that much lately, so I want to get back to doing it. I wanted to create a world where you could actually feel what was happening in the story as I was telling it. Of course, there's a movie clip reference in there, but perhaps the most indicative aspect of that clip is the personal nature. I get really personal on the show, sometimes maybe more so than I should. For instance, at the end of that episode, I tell a story about my mother's death and I end up crying and I leave the crying in the show. But filmmaking is a very personal art form. So allowing yourself to be vulnerable is one of the best ways to elevate your craft and connect with people. If you want to check out the whole episode, it's RFS002. Now, the end of the clip I played made a reference to the story that most directly led me to becoming a filmmaker. It's the story of my failed attempts to become a hip-hop mogul. And just let me warn you up front, it ain't no straight out of Compton. Enjoy this clip from RFS003 entitled SOS Atlantis.
The year was 1990, and I was an undergraduate business major at UC Berkeley. The music scene was bustling that year. Wilson Phillips and Invogue both urged you to hold on. Sinead O'Connor let you know that nothing compares to you. Bell Biv DeVoe warned you about that poisonous girl, and ladies with an attitude and fellows that were in the mood were voguing to Madonna's club classic from San Fran to Manhattan. Yeah, music was huge. And 1990 was the beginning of a decade that would be a defining era in hip hop. Names like Digital Underground, House of Pain, Kid and Play, Criss Cross, Boys to Men, TLC were blowing up the airwaves. And I was this close to becoming the next Rick Rubin or Russell Simmons. And by this close, I mean about as close as Beijing is to Boston. That summer, I embarked upon a business venture which at the time was a harrowing experience. A defining time in a young, would be hip hop mogul's life. It was the summer before my senior year at Berkeley. I had taken a semester off school to work full time as a financial analyst. By this time, I was earning about $14 an hour. Now, keep in mind that's $1990. Do you know how much money $14 an hour full time is to a 21 year old single college guy who lived on $2 Blondie's Pizza and Kellogg's Raisin Bran? It was a lot. I was practically a millionaire. I was also somewhat of a clubber, you know, a dance clubber. I'd go out to dance clubs every weekend and do my thing. I might not look it now, but I was pretty smooth on the dance floor back in my day. One of my fellow clubbers was Biscuit. Now, that's not his real name, but that's what he called himself, as in grab him in the biscuits. Google it. Anyway, how do I describe this guy? Let me see. He was, he was a tall, lanky brother with a really bad jerry girl, like one of those bad conks that where you conk your hair and it doesn't quite look like it's supposed to look. Anyway, his most defining characteristic, though, he, and this is weird, he had a fetish for, <laughs> he had a fetish for Asian girls, and he would use a fake British accent to pick them up. I kid you not, I can't make this stuff up. Well, now I've seen everything. So one night at a college frat party, <laughs> sorry, I I swear that was the truth. So one night at a college frat party, all right, I gotta compose myself. So one night, you see, this is what happened. This is the whole tragedy plus time thing. So one night at a college frat party that we had crashed, he introduces me to this young blonde named Stephanie. She was an emancipated minor and had quite a bit of chutzpah for a 16 year old. They then both introduced me to someone who I'll call Billy D. Now, I call him that because that's who he looked like, or rather, that's what he tried to look like. Picture a short Lando Calrissian in a three piece suit, a cheap three piece suit. That was Billy D. You know those people who are always talking about stuff they got, but you never see any of the stuff they're always talking about that they got? That was this dude. Now, apparently, Billy D and Biscuit had quote unquote discovered an amazing rap group at Oakland called Shadow Soul, or SOS for short. They needed a management company, and Billy and Biscuit wanted the four of us to be that company. We saw SOS perform at Laura Sproul Plaza later in the week, and they were truly amazing. We were going to be the next Def Jam. Now, take a minute to sit back and imagine this motley crew. 
You got Biscuit and his fake British accent. You got Wannabe Billy D. You got me, the relatively straight-laced business major. And you have Stephanie. Can you not already see the movie forming in your brain? And what do we decide to call our new hip-hop venture? Atlantis Entertainment. What in the world were we thinking? Why didn't we just call it Titanic Entertainment or Hindenburg Beats or something? All those names were harbingers for what was to come. So that was from SOS Atlantis. By far, I think, my most clever episode title. And one of my favorite episodes as well. The opening anecdote of that episode is actually a funny story about one of the biggest arguments I've had with my photographer wife. An argument that we had over a drop shadow. It's a hoot. That is also the episode where I introduced Shooting Sunshine, the making of my short film documentary series Mixed in America, episode one of which is called Little Mixed Sunshine. So I've had a number of episodes where I've talked about the trials and tribulations of making that film. The next regular episode of the show, RFS 004, was entitled Your First Time. This, along with SOS Atlantis, easily rank in my top five of all shows that I've produced so far. This episode was all about filmmakers' first times, either their first time on a set or their first time falling in love with the craft. So it made sense that my opening story was about, you guessed it, your first time falling in love. What about, uh, what about like, ex-boyfriends? Um, Say, we need an ex-boyfriend in there. No, I, I don't have Who's, like, an ex-boyfriend that just, like, really pissed you off, that you just, uh, that just, like, you hated? And I, if they're just, like... I don't have an ex-boyfriend. What? Yeah. You don't have a single, you're 17 years old, you don't have an ex-boyfriend? No. Really? That's not her. Guys don't look at me like that. Like, yeah, absolutely, guys look at you like no, that. No, no, no. I just I'm... saw two guys looking at you like that. Uh, Eric Wolf and Cody Dennis no, were 100% we were hitting on me. No, we were just talking. They were 100%. not hitting on me. No, no, there was Abs- absolutely yes, no way. Why don't you think they were hitting on you? Because I'm just, they weren't. Because you're what? Amy, you're absolutely beautiful. Oh my God, no. <laughs> You don't even have to see that scene to know there was a kiss at that pause. And you probably don't have to have seen the movie to know that that kiss was a first kiss. In case you're wondering, though, the movie was spectacular now. James Pontolt's 2013 coming-of-age story starring Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley. Two actors who would go on later to try to kill each other in Divergent. But in this movie, they're in love. I love that scene because Shailene's character, Amy, reminds me of what I think my wife must have been like in high school. Beautiful, brainy, and totally clueless about the guys who liked her. But there's something about your first time that's timeless. Our firsts always hold a special place in our heart. Your first kiss, your first time driving, first time you got to stay up late past your bedtime, your first... You know, first time seeing Star Wars. Yeah, first are special. First make a lasting imprint that we just can't seem to shake. I remember my first kiss. Wait, actually, I don't want to tell that story. My first kiss story is terrible. Let's just say it involves cake being thrown in my face. Literally. Ah, but I do remember my first crush. I was in the second grade, and her name was Jennifer. She was a younger woman, you know, first grader. You see, it was this small private elementary school, and the bathroom was at the end of the hall. 
Now, you had to pass the first grader's classroom in order to get there. And whenever I'd go to the bathroom, Jennifer would get up out of her seat, run over to the classroom door, and then blow me a kiss. I hated it. Although, I did notice I was going to the bathroom a lot more after she started doing that. Actually, my antics were right out of a classic Little Rascal short. I raised my hand. Miss Crabtree, may I go to the bathroom, please? My teacher's name really wasn't Miss Crabtree, but that's one of the details I don't really recall. Yes, you may, Ronnie. I then make my way down the hall, my heart beating faster as I neared the first grader's door. I then slowly walk past her room, casually turning my head over my shoulder to see if she would see me. Our eyes would meet. I'd then feign mortified surprise and run to the bathroom, where I'd literally wait at the entrance until she made it to the classroom door and blew her kiss. I'd say blech or something like that and pretend to wipe it off my face. And then slam the bathroom door where I'd sit on the closed toilet seat twiddling my thumbs and smiling ear to ear for about five minutes. Isn't young love grand? Yes, your first time is special indeed. And trust me, it's totally apropos that I should use a first kiss and a first crush as an introduction to first for filmmakers. Wow, that's a lot of Fs. I mean, think about it. Whenever a master filmmaker makes a movie about cinema, you know, a movie about movies or a movie about making movies, what do people say? So-and-so's film was, what, what was it? What do they say it always is? They say it was a love letter. Martin Scorsese's Hugo was a love letter to cinema. Cinema Paradiso was Giuseppe Tornatore's love letter to movies. Darren Aronofsky called Jafar Panahi's taxi a what? What What did he call that? Um, let me see. Sorry. What did he call that? Oh, yeah. He called it a love letter to cinema. Just Google the phrase love letter to cinema and see how many entries and blog sites you get. So we definitely have this image of cinema as something we filmmakers love. Not just in the way you love a good movie, but love as in the way you love a woman. Today, my hope for romantic filmmaking friends, we're going to explore first times, specifically as it relates to filmmaking. Along the way, we'll hear the first times of different filmmakers I've had the distinct pleasure to talk to these past few months. And we'll pick up from my infamous Atlantis Entertainment story and how that led to my first time on a real film set. My name is Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School. That was another episode with one of my favorite music choices, Lost Love Letters and Eric by Fog Lake. Again, music curated from freemusicarchive.org. Speaking of which, you may wonder, why are most of the songs from Free Music Archive when Song Freedom is a sponsor? Well, that's a great question, and there are a couple of reasons for that. First and foremost, Free Music Archive has Creative Commons songs that are allowed for commercial use, and I love the eclectic mix of the music. 
When you're scoring a podcast episode about the Coen brothers or about Quentin Tarantino, you want to pick music that invokes the style of those filmmakers. And FMA is filled with songs that fit that bill. Second, I want this show, as well as our blog, daredreamer.fm, to be a resource for filmmakers and artists to find fantastic, unique music that they can use free in their productions. Song Freedom has thousands of amazing songs, many of which have that cinematic vibe. And if you have a paying gig that can support paying for a license, you absolutely should go to songfreedom.com and find a song. But I know a lot of you listening are making your own personal projects and you just don't have the budget to license a song for use in your film. So I want this show to be inspiration to find great tunes. In fact, every week, my co-producer Chris Huslidge and I pick five Creative Commons songs and post them on the blog. Go to our music channel at daredreamer.fm slash music to see all of our picks. We've done it every week for the past six months. With all that said, when you do have a budget to license music... Look no further than Song Freedom. Like I said, they have every kind of genre represented. And if you're a wedding and event filmmaker and you need to find a popular song that your client will recognize and want to use in the video that you're making for them, they are the only site in the U.S. anyway where you can find mainstream artists like Imagine Dragons, The Afters, Lady Gaga, One Republic, Maroon 5, and The Lumineers. Like the song you're listening to now. Make you think she needs it, it's time. Song Freedom has been such a cool sponsor to work with. When they first came on board, I told them that I wanted to make sure they didn't have an issue with us promoting Creative Commons songs from Free Music Archive. That we wanted to continue to be a resource for filmmakers to find Creative Commons music, and they were totally down. They are a huge supporter of filmmakers using music legally. That's why they created their service in the first place. And they actually make a great compliment to Free Music Archive. Because frankly, sometimes you need something a little more, I don't know, normal, for lack of a better word. You know, more traditional and less eclectic. And sometimes you need a song that invokes a profound sense of nostalgia. Like what I wanted for RFS episode 5, In Search of Style. This first season of the show is about developing a signature style. This episode was the first I dealt with the subject directly as I spoke to filmmakers about style. In typical radio film school fashion, I opened the episode with a story about style. And since it was a story about a summer in my childhood, I wanted a song that invoked that feeling. So I turned to Song Freedom for a song that always reminds me of the movie Beaches, of all things. A movie that, like this episode, started with a childhood summer. So here's the opening anecdote for RFS 005 in search of style. You can dance. Every dance with the guy who gives you the eye, let him hold you tight. It was the summer of 77. I was in the fourth grade. Or was it the summer of 78 and I was in the fifth grade? Anyway, I was young. But even at such a young age, I had a sense of style. So darling, say the last dance for me. Mm, oh, I know. I was a camper at Griffith Park Boys Camp, also known as Camp Griffo. Griffith Park is this huge park in the Los Angeles area. The Los Angeles Zoo is located near there and has mountain ranges, picnic areas, uh, trains that you can hop on and have a lot of fun at. It's very, very popular. You ever seen one of those coming-of-age camping comedies where the counselors are loony and the kids go on crazy adventures? That was Camp Griffo. 
a week-long vacation from parents in a little boy's dreamland. Swimming and hiking every day, crazy antics, spooky stories by the campfire, pillow fights, bunk beds and wooden cabins, and all the camp grub you can eat. It was Friday, the end of the week, and a day before we'd have to leave our pre-pubescent heaven and head back to the realities of chores at home. As a celebration for the week, Camp Griffo organized a co-ed dance with the Hollywood Girls Camp. Ooh la la. It involved traversing over the mountain range in which the Hollywood sign is located. In fact, hiking to that iconic landmark was part of our itinerary that day. I think we had lunch there or something. It was going to be an all-afternoon trek. Now, if you recall from episode 4, your first time, I shared my advent... That was the name of the title. That wasn't your first time. Anyway, I shared in that episode how my adventures in love started at a rather early age. The second grade to be exact. So by now, I'm already a good two to three years into hopeless romanticism and fawning over cute girls. So the idea of arriving at a camp full of them was rather exciting. And I wanted to make sure I looked good. So against the repeated recommendations of my camp counselor, I decided to wear an all-white outfit on the hike. For some reason that totally eludes me, I was under the insane impression that I could hike five or so miles up and over the dusty, smoggy Los Angeles hillside through trees, rocks, the old original abandoned Los Angeles Zoo in an all-white outfit and arrive with said outfit not getting dirty. What the hell was I thinking? Now you gotta picture this. A little afro-headed black kid with a part down the side, white short sleeve shirt with large pointy collars, white bell-bottom jeans a la Michael Jackson from the Jackson 5. Chances are I probably had a little fake gold chain too. Now picture that same kid five or six hours later in a now brown outfit, jacked up head, filthy face, and scarred up ashy elbows. Uh, For my white and Asian friends of the audience... Ashy elbows are when dark-skinned people get that white covering over their dry skin. It's what made Jurgen's Lotion a multi-billion dollar industry. After all the work hiking to the girls' camp, they had to drive me back to Camp Griffo to get a change of clothes since I didn't bring one. All because I wanted to arrive in style. So my fellow filmmaking friends... How far are you willing to go in order to have style? That is the question we're addressing today. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School. As I mentioned earlier, Radio Film School is a show about stories. You just heard a collection of my personal stories that I've used over the past six months to set up topics on the show. But this show would not be what it is if it was just me babbling on about my own stories. The meat of the show are my conversations with guests and hearing their stories. And one of the most profound and moving stories we heard was from one of the early guests on the show, Marshall Davis Jones. Marshall is a spoken word artist who's had some YouTube viral hits based on his work. One of his videos was a TEDx talk performance he did called Touchscreen. 
But who am I to judge? I face Facebook more than books face me, hoping to book face to faces. I update my status, 420 spaces to prove I'm still breathing failure. To do this daily means my whole web wide world will forget that I exist. But with 3,000 friends online and only five I can count in real life, why wouldn't I spend more time in a world where there are more people that like me, wouldn't you? Steelmotion co-founder Patrick Moreau saw this and reached out to Marshall to see if they could work together. They collaborated on one of Marshall's most viewed performances to date. It's a piece he did called Spelling Father, wherein he tells the fictional story of being at a spelling bee as a kid. When asked to spell the word father, he spelled it M-O-T-H-E-R. Father. The spellmaster looks at me. It's an amazingly moving and in some cases even divisive performance. It was even featured on Upworthy and has been viewed millions of times. It's easily one of Stillmotion's most viewed videos. Well, in addition to the Stillmotion video version, Marshall did another TEDx performance where he recited this piece. But that version was slightly different than the Stillmotion version. The story behind why Marshall changed it is powerful and brings us full circle to the topic of fathers. Take a listen. Previously on the show, it's got such solid structure mm-hmm. where you get this conflict early on and you don't quite understand what he means or what he's saying. And then he takes you on this journey to reveal that, you know, his mother is this um, incredibly supportive figure in his life. And I hope that one day I'll be as great of a father as she was for me. You did not ask me to spell deadbeat, sir. It, it can be polarizing, which often strong art <laughs> says something. Yeah, it's. sure. What I found intriguing about all of this is that if you listen to the TEDx version of the piece, Marshall doesn't use the word deadbeat. I hope that one day I'll be as great of a father as she was for me. You did not ask me to spell disappointment or heartbreak. You did not ask me how to learn to grow to be man enough to walk 1,000 miles of forgiveness, sir. Why did this story change? What happened between the still motion recording two years ago and the TEDx recording a year later? Was there a reconciliation of sorts? Did the piece just naturally evolve? Only one man truly knows the answer, and that's Marshall himself. This week, we find out why he changed it and the significance of that change. There was a place where I just kind of developed a lot of compassion for really where my mom and dad were at the time that I was conceived, like where they were in life and how, uh, if I look at it in retrospect, I don't think that they were right for each other, you know, like, and all of those things kind of, and not in a bad way of like, not right for each other because X, Y, and Z, um, but they just had very interesting challenges growing up as kids and growing up into adults and they were very young at the time and I think that their their challenges weren't compatible with each other to help each other grow past them or through them and uh, all of those things kind of like as I was performing and doing this poem and realizing that here was another stage where I'm talking about my relationship to my mother really my mother and my father and I decided I just I didn't want to label him anymore as a as a deadbeat dad yeah yeah and uh you know so it was just like I remember like not like I was in my brain 
you know, I was just like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Like, you know, the, I'm so used to doing the poem and kind of just going through it very, you know, succinctly um, and very, you know, like I've done the poem a hundred times. So I'm going to do it and I'm going to say it and I'm going to say it and I'm going to say it and, you know, and get into that place where I just wanted to, to do it differently. And I look at poems or art in general for males is the closest thing that we can get to being um, this the closest aspect to what it's to what a woman must feel when she gives birth to a child, which is the culmination of this 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 crashing of DNA that like creatively comes together and then merges into something and then comes out of you. I think that for us as men, that's the closest thing we have to that. And in that essence, we have, you know, our creations. I think have lives of their own, and they grow, and they sort of become their own entity. They come, they become their own person. Really, only influenced by the source. And so the poem, um, I think, just had a moment where it was like, I need, I need to grow here, past this perspective, and you know, and through me, it was allowed to do that. That's some powerful stuff that makes for one of my favorite stories on the show. In part two of this Best of special, we'll hear some of my favorite clips from other guest stories. You'll hear the story about the Wizard of Oz I found so funny, I decided to make a whole episode about the Wizard of Oz just so I could play that story. You'll hear from YouTube personality and host of Film Riot, Ryan Connolly, as he shared a hilarious behind-the-scenes story for the making of one of his short films. There will be that and a few other thought-provoking profanities from our guests. Be on the lookout for that episode later this week. Speaking of stories, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you to check out LearnStory.org and see how amused storytelling by still motion can take your videos to a whole new level. There's a reason videos like Spelling Father get millions of views, or why they were asked by CBS again this year to film for the Super Bowl. It's because of how they tell stories and they're giving you all the recipe to their secret sauce muse. When you use offer code radio, you'll save $47 off lifetime access. That's learnstory.org. Remember to stay tuned after the credits for a bonus segment. I've been trying to do it right. I've been living a lonely life. Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM. Chris Huslidge is the show's co-producer. We're now a member of the Podcastica Network, a cornucopia of podcasty goodness. Check out the other eight remarkable shows at podcastica.com. If you like what we're doing, you can do me a huge favor and go over to iTunes, hit the subscribe button, and then leave us a comment and review. It helps to get the word out and the stories found. Maybe tell us what has been your favorite Radio Film School story. You can follow me on Twitter at FM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. That's all for now. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Arrivederci. Okay, so technically Radio Film School is made up of two bi-weekly shows that when placed next to each other make the show itself kind of weekly, if that makes sense. So like the main show, Filmmaker's Journey, is every two weeks. And then that's one that's more intensely edited. There's more interviews with 
filmmakers and guests and whatnot. And that usually is following our main theme of developing signature style and finding your voice as an artist. So when I started the show, though, I knew I wasn't going to be able to have those kind of episodes every week, but I didn't want to have any breathers in between. Like I always wanted to have content being put up on the iTunes feed. So I created short ends to be short mini documentary episodes about other random cinematic or film related topics. And there are going to be shorter episodes. They were supposed to be, and they started out being in the sort of like 12 to 15, actually nine to 15 minute range. Over time, they kind of ballooned to almost as long, oftentimes as long as regular show episodes, but they're still more simple to edit is usually maybe just one interview or maybe a a simpler topic that is easy for me to kind of like pull together. And so since they were going to be shorter episodes, I wanted to come up with a name for them. So I came up with the term short ends. And so short ends is a term that hails back to the days when film was actually shot on film. You know, that kind of thing that you have to like develop and you have to go out and take it to a lab and then bring it back. So back in the days of uh, film being sh- movies being shot on film, particularly for uh, film students who didn't have the budgets to buy whole reels of film, they could buy what is called short ends. So if you're shooting on a 35, 16, 8 millimeter film reel, you usually didn't use the entire film reel. There would always be some amount of film left over at the end. Those were short ends, and they were usually cut off and then spliced together and sold as short ends, and you can get them a lot cheaper than the traditional full roll of film. So if you needed a full roll of 16mm film, you can get a full roll of 16mm short ends, which were basically a bunch of end pieces of other 16mm reels that weren't used and put together into one full reel. Back in the days of film, short ends were a great resource for filmmakers who were on a budget and they needed to be able to get the media that they needed uh, at a good price. Thus, short ends.